Welcome to another episode of the Seminar Files. This is L. KB. Hashtag feminism. African queen. African queen. Three black women. Where's the lie? Hello, world, and welcome to another episode of the Feminoir Files. Hello, KB and Shug. How are y'all doing? Well, I'm on the sick and shut in list. Lord. What? <laughs> oh, you haven't heard this story, Shug, but what? What? I took a tumble recently and don't know what happened, but I hit the ground so hard. I have hardwood floors. It was early in the morning and I've been rotating heating pads and cold compresses. So, and my foot is actually messed up. So I'll be getting in to see a doctor soon and having my x-rays done so that I can see what's going on with my foot because I am still dragging my foot. It still hurts a lot. My back feels better. It's like I'm getting older and I can't afford these hits. Like I can't. That's it. So that's how I'm doing. Yeah. How about you, should? <laughs> I got a lot going on. Like we it have a line good. sisters. Thank you. I try. Like we have um line sisters that are pregnant, one line sister in particular that's pregnant. And I keep thinking about pregnancy brain and how people are just kind of like loopy and all over the place and not in their right mind. And I'm like, if I'm like this normally, what would I be like if I ever got pregnant? Because I just I call L like five or six times today. Like, is it time to get on for the recording yet? And every time it was wrong. So maybe honestly, I'm gonna be honest. That's why I FaceTimed you like 30 minutes ago. Cause I was like, is your friend like crazy? Like, what is going on right now? Like, is she not getting the same messages we getting? Because I'm really confused at this point. No. So, audience, I am still in Alabama, and I'm getting my time zones mixed up because I'm in the central time zone, and everything is on Eastern time, and I'm looking at two different computers with two different clocks. So, I'm I'm all over the place. So, so that's why I sit it in your calendar, so that could be on your phone, though. And it should reset to the right time zone, no? But if she's well, looking at two different computers yes. at times, that's the confusion. Yeah. I was getting myself confused. Yeah. So bless a little hard. Well, how you doing? <laughs> Look, how you doing, L? I'm on the sick and shut in list. Shook has pregnancy, really not pregnant brain. What do you have going on? Actually, I'm doing quite well compared <laughs> to the two of y'all. <laughs> oh. I mean Well, you know what? Somebody got to be doing good. I'm okay with it. <laughs> Listen, I've been losing inches. I've been walking. I didn't do my second exer- my second workout today because I had a meeting that really messed me up. And I was telling my dad that I was a little frustrated because I felt like I shouldn't even been a part of this meeting. But my dad was like, well, your job is more important than you working out. I was like, that's not the point. The point mm-hmm. is. <laughs> tell like, him like. Right. Tell him, like, if you don't work out and get healthy, you're not going to be here for the job. Boom. That part. That's what I should have said. But in any event. But, you know, I made it through. I'm still meeting my goals for the day. So I'm not too upset. And you have this competition on me. And I, I had to call you yesterday. But, like, man, listen, I'm, I'm on the sick and shut in list. So I ain't going to make it. We got to do this again. Cause but you clearly. still did a workout. 
workout today. So I'm proud of you. I did you did you see how long it took me to walk? <laughs> that no, I did. I can't see how long it takes. I just see that you worked out. So my daughter was like, "Mommy, I was going to tell you you shouldn't have done it. I'm dragging my foot down the street. Like it was a waste. <laughs> of, like Apple thought it was two minutes of a workout when I was out there for like forty minutes. Like Why it was really log long. it. Why aren't you logging in your phone? I mean, in your watch." No, I did. That was my watch saying you really only did two minutes of an exercise. But you started and stopped it on your own. Yeah, it says I did a workout, but I'm saying like they don't look at it as a real workout. I guess they said I walked too doggone slow. I can't. Mm. So apparently I was power walking so fast today. I normally track my walks on the Nike Run Club app on my phone. But apparently I was walking so fast today that my watch sent off a little notification like, oh, I think you're doing an outdoor walk. Is that true? I was like, you a shiner, you. You're a shiner. <laughs> look, look, it's the end of the day, and I got three minutes of 30. Slapping on, boo boo, slapping on. Like <laughs> listen, and I walked 1.47 miles, and they said I did two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you did. That's what matters. I know. The second shut in list. Anyway. Yes, you still got out there and did it. So are we, I'm not drinking today. I have water. I am. I'm always drinking. I got root, I got root beer. Oh, boo. I'm drinking a red wine. I'll tell the, the audience that. I'm drinking a red, bark red had, wine. Bark's had bite. Oh, jeez. Y'all in them sodas. Is that old anyway. commercial? I haven't seen that since I was in high school. And they need to stay right there. It's still good. I would say Suge is the only person I know of that drinks root beer. I like I, I like root beer floats if I can get somebody yes. to make one. Oh my god! I hate root really. Beer. Yeah, oh. I don't like it. I'll drink a cheer wine though in a heartbeat. It's not the same. It's I know mm. it's not the same. That's why I drink it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I will drink a root beer float. Mm-mm. First of all, it's a lot of things going on, right? Yeah. So with Kanye West, and I feel like he has gone from. I'm going to run for president. First of all, listeners, do not vote for Kanye West for president. He's not going to be on your ballot no way. Right. He's not going to be on your ballot because he's not filed the necessary paperwork to be on your ballot. So do not waste your vote. That's the first thing. Second thing is, in my personal opinion, just pray for Kanye and his family because he's obviously going through some things. So He's having an episode. He's having a manic episode, yeah. And here's what I'll say to that. Like, I think it gets a bad rap sometimes, you know, just having come from the mental health field and you've seen this, especially with bipolar patients, like they're really high functioning, of course. But a lot of them still go to college. Like they can do so much. And and one of the biggest problems is it's like stopping medication because they feel okay. And I think with right. him not recognizing that and, you know, not agreeing to medication. It will only get better once he gets to that medication. But I think one of the conversations that people are having is, is this really due to the bipolar disorder, which I do think it is, but is this also a stunt for publicity? And I think you have to question that because there was a thought that he was going to have an album come out, et cetera. So it's, you know, I hope that that's not the reason that he's doing this. It seems that he does seem to have antics come up when it's time for him to release something and this cycle has worked for him in the past. And so he probably continues to do it. I still do think that some of that mental health plays into why he thinks he needs to do this, if that's truly what he's doing. And so I think too, again, it's just, it hurts the community as a whole. 
when we talk about mental health, because now people can make jokes and make light. So even though I'm not a fan of the Kardashians, what I will say is that I can appreciate whoever wrote that speech for Kim because she didn't write that. Let's just be clear about that. She did not write that. Okay. Okay. That statement. She didn't do that. Um, Nothing about that says she did that. But anyway, so whoever wrote that for her on her behalf, I think they did a really good job of saying that because it is difficult once you have an adult and trying to get services for them because they can kind of decide unless they are a harm to someone or themselves, you really can't do anything. And I'm also curious about the people who are coming to visit him. Dave Chappelle is going down there and it seems like everything is kosher. Then, you know, we know Dame Dash went down there. Like it's people going to visit him, which is also a really beautiful thing to see at the end of the day, because now you, you really see he has a circle of people. Listen, y'all, I just want Jay-Z to come and visit him though. I I just, I just feel like, no, that's over. But Jay got to let this go. If you know, he has a problem. Like, I don't think it's it's him. KB, because I was watching something on Facebook where they did like a whole deep dive into what happened. So there was a lot like when him and Kanye fell out, like Beyonce and Jay were going through their own marital issues. She had a couple of miscarriages, the whole lemonade thing. And then in the midst of that, Kanye and Kim got married. So this was kind of like Kim was. She had the show, but Kim wasn't Kim as we know her today. So, like, A-list celebrities were still looking down on her, like, mm, I don't want to be associated with that because it was more tabloid fodder. Like, people weren't really taking Kim seriously as they kind of do now. Like, I don't want to give her, like, legit credibility, but she has gained more notoriety since all of that happened but no you might as well you give up on that like jay-z and kanye being the best of friends again i i don't see it happening me either i just wish you could because i just feel like that would help a lot of this you know you could tell like somebody looks up to someone i really do think that he would be someone that maybe kanye would actually respond to and maybe you know kind of listen and Say, okay, like, even if you're doing okay, let's do this. But a lot of times, and you have to remember this, in those, what we call, you guys are saying episode, but it's really considered like a manic episode, what we're probably seeing right now. And a lot of times patients feel like they're, they get so much done at this time. And I know we'll have a psychologist that's coming on later. We can definitely ask her more about this because of course she is, you know, trained in this area. But they seem like they do a lot. So a lot of times people don't want to take their medication because they feel like they stunt themselves. And I heard an interview he did where he said he's actually glad that people got to see the other Kanye before the medication because they do, they feel like they're more creative. They can do a lot more. Um, and it's because they're in that, that high elevated episode that they do get a lot of things done. I remember having a patient one time told me they wrote a whole book in one night. And I had another one who used to garden and, and she would go outside and just start doing flowers and plants and and so forth. So again, it's one of those things where you know, you, you see that and you want to, you know, stop it because you know that it's not all the way healthy, but that is how they kind of, you know, work together. So again, I mean, it's, it's sad. I just hope this is not a ploy. That's all I'm going to say. Gotcha. Well, I don't, I don't think it is like, um, Kanye has 
openly admitted that he doesn't always take his his medicine. But then also, too, I think that speaks to what you were saying as to where I'll give it to him. Like, he is really, really super talented. Like, I will give him that he is probably on genius level. But again, taking that medication alters, like, your moods and your states. And there's no telling what he's been working on because he is super creative. But I also think that if he is medicated, there might be a little bit of fear there as to am I still going to be as creative? Yes. Are people still going to love me? Mm-hmm. You know, all of that could be going on in the back of his mind, but the only person that could really answer that would be Kanye himself. But not, even, but not even that with medication, like if people still love me, it's also how it makes you feel. Like some people feel lethargic. Some people are sleepy all the time. Like it has a lot of other effects and that's why people feel that they don't have to necessarily take it all the time. So even as KB mentioned earlier with the psychologist coming on, we would be remiss if we did not mention the passing of civil rights activists, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis. And I think that with the actions and with the sacrifices that these men made with hundreds shoot, thousands of others during the civil rights movement of the 60s really goes into and is connected to the things that we see today. And and even in the conversation that we'll have later about the effects of viewing the trauma and the violence against Black bodies. So C.T. Vivian, we know, was a preacher. He was an activist. He was sort of the right-hand man of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., And John Lewis was also a congressman later in life. In his early years, when he was a student, he was the president of SNCC. He Mm -hmm. also marched uh, from Selma to Montgomery and was one of the first people assaulted during Bloody Sunday. And he was also a freedom writer. And when he, I watched his masterclass on OWN the day after his death was announced and really just hearing from him in his own words and about the things that he did and the things that he experienced was just really touching to me and seeing of course you know violence against black people I don't want to say it's not something new to me which is unfortunate you know it's not and it also made me think about the video that Childish Gambino did for This Is America how typically we see violence, we see things that happen, and then we move on to the next thing. We sort of have become desensitized to it. And unfortunately, with the passing of George Floyd, America isn't desensitized anymore. I don't Mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you all agree with that. Like, I feel like people have started to really take action. I think it's a certain group that's not you know, like that's not desensitized, right? Like I think for us as black people, we've seen these images over and over again. And I know we were having a conversation before we got on about this around, you know, like you were stating during that civil rights probably kicked off that with seeing these these images on TV with the hoses and everything else. But like you say, with social media, it's taking it to another whole level. So I think for us, I think it still affects us. I don't think, I wouldn't call us desensitized, but we've seen this stuff so much. I think like you were saying with the other people and our allies that are now allies, I think for them, it's their woke moment, right? <laughs> Where they're starting to see it and be so surprised. But man, we've been seeing this and it's, it's right. crazy. 
And I think that's why I kind of was like, let's get into this conversation because I tell people all the time, I don't want to see this no more. Like, right. I don't, I don't need yeah, to see this. No I don't more. watch. I, I you know, I, I don't want to see it no more because we've seen this time and time again. Like, I want everybody else to see it. Like, I do. I want everybody else to see it because, like you said, uh, we know what the effects can be mm-hmm. if everybody else sees it. Right. Because we are can the I minority. Right. I'm sorry. Can I just say that I'm very proud that you use the word allies? That's well, you word. know, well, you know, listen, you. I'm on the sick and shut in list. I really want to say something else, you know? But the ones I'm talking to, see, no, I'm talking about two different groups. Like, sure, gonna see you are. Okay, because you know them other ones, them colonizers are still present. I know. Okay, just so we're clear, I'm still gonna go there. (laughs) God ain't through with you yet, apparently. (laughs) Oh god, where you at, dog? I just need you to back me up. (laughs) No, she's not gonna back you up because she knows that you're still crazy. That's not a proper word to use. Okay, we have sorry. a psychologist that's on that's going to tell you that. Thank you My very apologies. much. <laughs> My apologies. So she still knows that God is still working on you. Yes. Just like I, I All the time. Praise <laughs> Oh, exactly. I, I can't stand you some days. Just so you clear No, that. so, and then it's funny that, you know, we're talking about all this because we had a really good discussion at work today. So we did see like this whole movement of where, we started having responses from corporations about Black Lives Matter and the things that they plan on doing to help the cause. So one of my friends actually had a speech during one of our all-hands meetings that talked about everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matter. And she made it out like very plainly. She was like, you know, our Black colleagues, like we're not okay. So, you know, you have African-Americans who are working in this organization you need to ask us how we're doing. We're not okay. We're traumatized. We're angry. We're hurt. We're afraid. We're upset. And it led to a lot of discussion afterwards. And there was actually one person who was on the call who didn't realize that he was not on mute. And he had a very strong reaction to everything that she was saying. But however, it was good that his little outburst led to further dialogue because I'm like that is what is needed so I'm I'm like you know I appreciate white people you sitting and listening but also too I know behind closed doors you know you're trying to be PC in front of everybody because we're still at work but the real conversation needs to happen behind closed doors on how you're feeling yes KB what was the the person who had outbursts were they white or black of course they were white. That's what I was about to ask. I mean, what was the outburst? Was it in favor of us so, or not? No. So the outburst was, are you kidding? Like, are you serious? Like, we spent 15 minutes on this topic. So I'm like, and that's the discussion that needs to be had. This is a worthy conversation. Wow. This is something that does need to take place. And it does need to take place in the workplace because we have been sweeping this under the rug for too long. Another question. Yes, KB. So I'm literally raising my hand. So the other question that I have, is this the first time you guys have had a town hall or any kind of meeting about this? No. So there have been, there've been multiple, but I guess that person felt like that wasn't the appropriate place to have that type of conversation. Some of the commentary was we've had town halls and other people have had calls specifically dedicated to this topic so why is it being brought up here when we're supposed to be discussing like the health of the organization so they felt it was kind of out of place that this is the health of the organization like if your people not good 
they not going to produce like you want them to. Like, what part of this are we not connecting? That part. See, that's how you know you don't have the right people sitting in the right rooms, right? Because that would be my my response immediately. If you don't have, and we've got studies to back this kind of thing up. If your people aren't happy, that's why they put so many things into like, you know, companies put all these programs into place to try to make the work environment, you know, friendly and happy. If your people aren't good, you're not going to get a good result. Mm-hmm. You're going to get more productivity if your people are happier. Exactly. So I would have brought that back to him immediately. And one of the things we've seen in, in our company is that we're still having these conversations and now people are saying, okay, well, what's the result? Like what is, again, and we've said this on this podcast, what mm-hmm. will be the outcome? What mm-hmm. what policies and procedures, what things are we putting into place? Mm-hmm. And we're not even asking for handouts. And it was so crazy because our right. CEO just had a call last week and made a comment on there, almost insinuating that if the person's skill set is not there, we're willing to bring their skill set up. Skill set is not the I problem. Don't, I don't agree. Skill set is not the problem. Because that's how people have thought that we've gotten into positions because of our color. No, 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 yes. no, no. We have the right skills. We just are not in the, the good old boys club. We need club. the opportunity. We're not in the good, old, the good old boys club that allows for that to these positions to be for a certain people to a certain group of people who have been chosen. So that's not the, the situation. We're not asking for handouts. We're asking for that opportunity, like you said, Suge. And yes. to be able to go in there and show what we can do. You put us under pressure. Right. Hell, think about where we come from. We work under pressure. We know That's how to right. get things done. We know how to learn it. We don't know how to do it. We will figure it out. So, you know, again, I think some of these companies are starting to get a little, you know, kind of reverting back to what was before. Right. We got to keep pushing it. Business as usual. Yep. We got to keep pushing it. And, you know, that's where I'm going to go with that. But, you know, let's bring in our guest today because I'm excited about So. I'm going to read her formal introduction, but I actually know her on a personal level. You know, anytime I see us in these positions, I get excited. And when I initially saw her and I'm like, she's a psychologist and she's black. Like I was, I don't know why, I think she's like the first psychologist I met that was black. I'm going to be honest, <laughs> and, which is crazy. But, you know, she was like the first one that I actually had a relationship with. And I mean, we talk and, you know, she's dynamite. So I was excited to bring her in today because this conversation around these images that we see in TV and what kind of trauma can that produce for us as a, as Black people, right? This was something that we talked about offline. You know, I've talked to Elle and Sugar about this numerous times. And like I was telling y'all earlier, I'd be telling people, I don't want to see this shit on TV no more. But I really mm-hmm. don't. But I understand the importance of it. And so we'll get into that. So let's just go ahead and introduce our guest. This is Dr. C. She is a licensed clinical psychologist. She earned her doctoral degree from Drexel University where she was trained as a clinical neuropsychologist. We have hey. that in common where that's where I earned my MBA. So I love it. I'm that. an alum too. Oh yes, that's right. Sure went there. <laughs> that is right. She is. So we had three Drexel alum, but you know, we, we care about our HBCU first. But anyway, right. she, <laughs> she completed her clinical residency in the U.S. Air Force at the Malcolm Grove Medical Center on Andrews Air Force Base, home to the U.S. President's Air Force One, and then served as an officer and military psychologist for nearly seven years. Following her time in the service, she relocated back to her home area and has worked at her local VA medical center and her own private practice. 
In addition to her clinical work, she serves as part-time faculty, instructing graduate level mental health courses and is active in her community, working towards a better life for women and girls. So let's welcome Dr. C to the show. Hello, everybody. Thank you. Hey, girl. Hey. (laughs) And I have to tell you, this is my first podcast ever. Welcome. Podcast, Cherry. (laughs) So excellent. Exactly. So, yeah, we're just going to dive right in. I mean, you know, we again, you know, we brought this up because of the images. And I just want to kick off with this and ask you, Dr. C, you know, what are those effects that we can see? You know, when we see those images of killing of, you know, repeatedly online, like not even just of black people, but anyone who just kind of continuously watches things Mm. that could be disturbing and deaths and things like that. What does that do to a person over time? Yeah, that's a really great question, because I have to start from the beginning. In general, when we talk about um, significant psychological effects of trauma, typically we're talking about people who have been primarily traumatized, that they've had a traumatizing incident, something that happens to them. And we've had to sort of modify our understanding about that and our conceptualization of that over time because we're recognizing the impact that any kind of disaster just it has on a group of people um, who are watching more in a tertiary position or what we call the vicarious position. Um, In the military, I had my first contact with that, working with people who were, you know, they were engaged in combat, but they were remote. So we had people who started flying our drones and they were dropping bombs and they were killing people, direct contact, you know, and they would film this all day. And we started seeing them have similar kinds of PTSD symptomatology as of someone that was absolutely in combat. So early on, I was able to sort of reconceptualize this idea of trauma. And the field has been doing that in general. So um, and so over time, you're starting to see the tracking and you may have remembered, you know, there was a big debate over, for instance, video games, you know, causing an impact on kids. And mm-hmm. in the 50s, it was actually violent movies, violent and horror movies having mm-hmm. an impact on people. And then over time there, you know, whenever there was a mass casualty event, you would get like an influx of people who would report mental health symptoms. And often they were dismissed until, of course, litigation. And so I think that there's been sort of this negative casting over the idea that media images or mass-produced images could cause the same kind of traumatizing effect as actually being in an incident, which has sort of is, it's delayed our ability to get to where we need to go to understand it. Mm. More recently, we're actually doing studies and we're finding that, you know, mass casualty events like September 11th, there, there are studies that were done that showed people who, of course, um, were not necessarily at ground zero, but who watched it. They were impacted within weeks, and then they did follow-up studies within months, and then they did follow-up studies even within a year, and then showed that even people who watched anniversary images, you know, the television footage, would then report PTSD symptoms and at, at some point would have a probable diagnosis of PTSD if they were to actually clinically follow it through. Mm-hmm. And so there are other studies like that where we see that in children, where we see that with mass casualty events that are involving violence, but also involving natural disasters. And it just became clearer and clearer that media images could cause those symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that you may get pushback when people talk about this, this idea of seeing a video or seeing an image causing any kind of significant psychological effect. But it's really important that we start paying attention to scientists, you know, the scientific data that shows us that it can happen. And I'd say that in general, 
because PTSD is the you know most significant sort of diagnosis that we get when it comes to experiencing trauma. People can sometimes get hung up on the fact that you know that initial definition of you know violence being done to you or a specific traumatizing event to you. We can get caught up caught up on that. We forget that there are so many other negative consequences. You know, you can have lasting effects like depression and anxiety, fear responses that come, you know, inappropriately, avoidance, avoidance of things that you really need to do. So when you ask the question, what kind of effects? Well, pretty much every effect that you can expect when anytime anyone experiences a trauma, you know, you can see emotional effects more immediately, whether it's shock, fear, sadness, anxiety, worry. You can see behavioral effects. You'll see people often avoiding. You'll see people pulling back and distancing. Sometimes people will jump in and help, right? So sometimes there's a positive effect. And that's um, that flight or fight. Is that the kind of the effect that we're thinking about when we well, talk about jumping in? Yeah, I, I would say uh, sometimes that could be, the, that absolutely could be the case. You do have people who get angry enough and they jump out there and they're ready to go no matter what. And they're triggered really easily. And then you have some people who are more, they're advocates mm-hmm. and they're helpers. So absolutely. When we look at it in terms of fight or flight, you absolutely have people who respond in those different ways. But sometimes it's positive. Right. Sometimes it's actually a positive coping or um, an act of coping or something that um, is going to benefit the community or benefit the individual. You can often see psychological effects, which is just lasting effects. You know that what starts off as fear, what starts off as anxiety actually turns into something that's a little bit more significant and become more serious mental illness. Yeah. Um, particularly with repeated exposure. And what do you think about, you know, kind of, you know, this is not on the topic of necessarily police killings, right? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm thinking about even when we've heard Black men and Black people in general talk about being in their area and being harassed by police officers or even violence in their communities where, so when you think about, you know, even places like Chicago where people are constantly killed, you see a lot of killings happening there. I kind of think of the same thing. Like you said, that anxiety level, that avoidance, like you're always constantly watching out for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of thinking about that. Even when you say about media images, if you keep seeing those things that can call, that can do something to your spirit. And I know Elle was going through a period, you know, she was like, I'm protecting my, my energy. And I believe totally in that with, you know, kind of watching what you put into your spirit and what you watch, but we Absolutely. also need that, right? Elle, like, I mean, we kind of <laughs> need this too. And, and, and Dr. C, you said something about, while these images are harmful to us, we still do need them because that's what we see movement yeah. being the cause. I think it's important to recognize that there could be harm only in that. And, and, I, and I think this is something that is really relevant for now because media images are bombarding us. So it's not just simply that we're watching a negative clip on the news and we can turn the news off. Literally, it's videos that we're seeing posted online, videos that are being sent by family and friends. We're just constantly bombarded by it, right? And there is kind of this perspective that we can't take a break from it, that everywhere we turn, whether it's us watching images or whether we're in our communities and we're seeing it happen, is there is no break. I do think that's harmful. I absolutely think it's harmful. Now, that being said, just because it's harmful, if it has a role and the good outweighs the bad, then it's important that we recognize what the role is and then mitigate the harm, right? But for some, the harm may be greater than what we can mitigate, for instance, with children. We need to figure out what, what is the appropriate age where if your child is not exposed to it because they, if your child is not inherently living in a violent community where we can't control if they see it, then you certainly may want to con- reconsider having your children exposed to it unnecessarily, right? So there are things that we need to think through in order to mitigate the harm and ensure that what we're doing is either going to prevent us from being exposed to it or is going to counteract it in some way. And so another thing is, again, 
there the good part that comes from it may outweigh, you know, the concern about the harm. And so then there are so many things that we can maybe control in addition to that. So for instance, are you managing your stress otherwise? Are you engaging in self-care otherwise? Do you have other, you know, pre-existing issues? Like, are you already prone to depression or anxiety? Because if that's the case, then it'll make it much more difficult to become desensitized to those things so that you can move on with the good work. And if you are in a community or if you are someone who doesn't know how to actively cope and you cope through drinking or using substances, or if you cope by, you know, <laughs> you know, other more maladaptive ways, then you might be causing more harm than good. And yeah. so again, we just need to recognize, yes, it is harmful. It is negatively impacting. But then what do we need to do about it to make sure that we protect ourselves against it? If in fact we do need it, yeah. we need to see it. So. I have a question. So we talked about PTSD, but can you explain what exactly is PTSD and what are some of the recommended treatments for for it? Okay, so PTSD is just one of the mental disorders that can be the consequence of experiencing a, a significant trauma. What you can think about it as is sort of you having a, a fear of something, something happening that was bad to you. And the typical process would be that you, you would get scared. You have that fight or flight response that KB was suggesting earlier. And then your, your brain sort of remembers it, right? So that if you're ever in that situation again, you can protect yourself. You can prevent it. You can do what you need to do in order to be safe. When you think about PTSD, think about it as that fear response that does not go away. So not only do you remember it, but the memory is so indelible that you continue to re-experience it over and over again in different ways, whether it's through dreams and nightmares, distressing dreams, whether it is you can't get it out of your mind and you're unable to focus on anything else because it keeps cycling through your mind. Sometimes people actually re-experience it as flashbacks. So they, they absolutely are experiencing it again and they're feeling what we call a physiological arousal, which is the things that happen when you're scared. Think about when, when someone scares you, your heart races, you sometimes panic, you have difficulty breathing, you may sweat. Those symptoms come back. Those symptoms continue to, to cycle through as if you were experiencing that, that same fear response again, even though the trigger is no longer there. And so there's a whole constellation of symptoms that include sort of physiological arousal, your body getting kind of agitated, irritability, um, avoidance, where you, you find yourself not wanting to look at, talk about, or do anything that's related to the trigger or the issue. You may also find that there are other negative effects on your mood and also just in general, significant anxiety that goes with it and other situations that could be associated with the thing that um, that that trigger was associated with. And so you get kind of this classical condition, this condition that goes along with it. And so PTSD can be quite debilitating because if you're constantly experiencing a trauma over and over again, and then it comes with that significant anxiety and avoidance, pretty much you start to isolate yourself. Right. And sometimes people do look for ways to self-medicate or even to avoid things that remind them of the trauma to the point where they just are cut off from life. So that is one significant consequence that can be associated with with a traumatic incident that happens to someone. The unfortunate side of all this is that when you have someone that's been, for instance, um, dealing with racial trauma or if they're dealing with police brutality or anything like that, then watching other people go through it can re-traumatize them. Right. And hearing the stories over and over again or seeing other people in their family or other people in their community who are experiencing can cause that re-traumatization. And that's one disorder. There are others that could also follow, like other anxiety disorders or other mood disorders um, that can also happen when people experience stress and trauma. Yeah. So, Dr. C, to even sort of expand on what you just mentioned, 
What are some other long-term effects that seeing the killings of unarmed Black people could have on others in the Black community besides Mm -hmm. PTSD? What are some other things that we could experience? So aside from when you talk about other things, you mean other things outside of mental illness and mental disorder? Yes. Yes. So other things could be just simply just distrust, not trusting any of the systems, right? And so when you think about um, our communities where some of our communities are vulnerable already, is really difficult then if you can't trust the groups that are sent to help us, if you can't trust, for instance, the police, or if you can't trust a mental provider or a medical provider. So in general, distrust, right? That could be a really big effect. Another big effect is just in general, people sort of withdrawing from society in a way where they're able to give what they, they need to be able, what they can give, right? So when you're, when you're finding yourself pulling back or you're avoiding that's a significant waste of your potential, significant waste of your ability to give to your community, to perhaps give to your family. And so that pulling back and that withdrawing can be another significant impact that you'll, that you'll see. I see distrust even, you know, we're talking about, and I know we haven't talked about this on the podcast episodes, but, you know, even thinking about COVID-19 and vaccines that are being made right now, we're hearing mm-hmm. largely amongst a lot of people in the Black community saying, I'm not taking no vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that goes along with that distrust, right? Like, yeah, Elle is raising her hand. You're not going to Tuskegee experiment me. It's I'm not going to be exactly a Tuskegee, but I mean, we'll do another conversation. I'm not even going to do that today. But okay. the thing is like, because of Tuskegee, right, experiment. Exactly. Mm-mm. Even today nope. in 2020, and they put a lot of parameters that were not in place then. But because of that, Man, I'm concerned about my people still dying because we going to sit up here and not be the ones. And we've been having some conversations amongst, you know, our community and within our company, because we're our company is one of the ones that is developing a vaccine and saying, how do we get our people to take one? And and, and again, I'm going to bring up Minister Louis Farrakhan. Y'all know I'm going to bring it to, you know, I love what he said about it. Like, let's have these black doctors sit down and talk to us about what this is. Like, if they're going to co-sign because we know we got reservations you know, I, I think that was an excellent, you know, way to kind of say what, how else are we going to see these things uh, manifest themselves? And just to go back to your point about the kids, what is your thoughts about how we talk to our kids? So I'll tell you, I struggle with that because yeah. that distrust, right? Because, you know, even with my daughter, she's kind of afraid of the police officers. And, I, and yeah. it's not even, yeah. an, I didn't do it intentionally. No. Right? It wasn't an intentional thing to say, don't like officers, but she's developed this on her own, just kind of like hearing stories. And, you know, she'll be like, what's happened? I said, oh, you know, police officer killed, you know, this guy, especially in George Floyd happened. How do you do, how do you deal? Like, how do you talk to the kids? And this is for any of our listeners that have kids. Like, how do you do that without, you know, you want them to have a healthy amount of reservation because we know it's real. But then I also trying to balance that with, okay, I don't want you to be afraid because if you do need help, maybe you can get them to help you. Right. So a couple of things. One is self-preservation to believe that the police are not in your corner because unfortunately our community has been harmed by them. And so to some extent, there are some communities that they cannot rely on the police to help them. And unfortunately that does create this sort of generational cycle of trauma and also distrust and also a different set of rules that you may have to go by than the average person who their communities have not experienced these kinds of concerns. 
I so I do have a, a fairly strong opinion of it. Some of it is um, personally driven. So you, I have to sort of acknowledge and recognize my own privilege in this process. I do think it's important that we teach our children about the, the way that things come down racial lines and that the police may treat us or tra- treat you differently than your peer. The question is how and when do you do that, particularly if you're in a safe environment, right? And so if you perceive yourself to be in a safe environment, I do, I go by the guidelines that we should wait to traumatize our children, right? Because we can't possibly know how sharing those kinds of messages with young children will be taken by them and how that will cause them to develop. And the fact of the matter is kids do need to develop a healthy trust of at least the adults we place in, in their in their arena and the people that we put around them. And so my rule of thumb is not to share things that are difficult for kids to understand, particularly violence against other people and things like that, until they're at least 10 or so, you know, heading into sort of middle school. But that would also have to assume that you have a a fair amount of privilege and can sort of shield your child from those kinds of things, that you can shield your child from images, um, media images, that you can frame the discussion. I think at that point, when a child is nine or 10 or heading into middle school, you want to be able to frame the discussion. One of the things that can preempt trauma is sort of like a uh, uh, pre-exposure and then teaching people what to expect, teaching them what what can happen, what should happen, how does it happen, Um, teaching them about their history, teaching them about their people, teaching them about their strengths, teaching them about the beauty of the culture, but then also where that's been degraded and how that has been under fire, right? So at that point, you you can probably assume that around 9, 10, 11, a kid can understand that. Younger, you may not be able um, to deliver that message in a way that they can fully understand. However, I recognize that there are communities where they are already living in the violence and a police coming up to their eight-year-old, seven-year-old, five-year-old is going to have just as harmful effect, right, as a police coming up to a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old. And so if that is the case, you may have to expose them as early as possible. But then what I would also offer is that that means a lot more care needs to be given to right? A lot more love, a lot more compassion, a lot more information about how to cope, how to take care of themselves, you know, who to surround themselves with so that they understand that there is love and support for them. And it's not just about violence. It's not just about discrimination. So yeah, I think, of course, depending on where you are, if you can guarantee that safe environment, you start those discussions and you start them as early as possible, which is about middle school. Mm -hmm. If you're in an environment you can't control, you may have to pre-expose much sooner. Yeah. One of the things, and I don't want to dominate, you know, L and Suge, y'all please jump in. One of the things I just actually had a, you know, um, a meeting with one of my friends that actually used to be my manager. And we were talking about Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on at work, you know, with the efforts. And her conversation was around one of our coworkers who she hadn't reached out to. He had had a conversation with me. He's, of course, of African descent. Mm-hmm. And he stated, you know, no one reached out to me, but one of my colleagues, you know, that works with me. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of surprised she hadn't done that. And she was like, you know, I just felt like that would actually be insulting. Like, I'm going to place on you what happened to someone that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. I had to break down for her, you know, hey, this is this didn't happen to him. No, he doesn't know George Floyd. But we almost put ourselves and see ourselves in those positions every time a Black person is killed by a police officer, especially mm-hmm. when they're unarmed. Mm-hmm. And we know that. Dylan Roof, isn't that his last name? Should Roof? That's his last name. Mm-hmm. Murder he, can go, 
Yeah, it can kill yeah. all those people in the church and they stop him at the the store to go and get him some Burger King. Burger King, Burger King right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we know that they can walk away from situations that we necessarily don't get to walk away from. Right. And so even though it didn't happen to us, we are still putting ourselves in those positions and that's where, i.e. trauma, and she's, a, she's actually a psychiatrist that I'm having this conversation with. Yeah. I understand too that there's blinders, right? Because she right. has a certain privilege like you talked about. That maybe, and you know, when, once we got done with the conversation, she totally got it. Like, oh man, KB, I see. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah. You know, she's like, I just didn't think about like they could put themselves in that position. So my question is around, you know, do you think those same effects that happen to us of seeing these images and media, do they happen to the same degree in like, say, a non-Black community? And, I, I, and I'm asking that because while I understand that they affect them and that's probably why we're seeing a lot of change because we have nothing else to do because of COVID, but to sit down and watch this stuff. Right. But does it affect them to the same? I mean, you know, there's a level of empathy, but I just don't think that it could go as deep and maybe I'm wrong. Um, I I think that it's, so no, I think you're not wrong on a macro level. I think that you have to remember people are individuals. And so for instance, I do have a friend, a white male friend who he's Jewish and he can he can identify racial oppression and he can relate to it, right? And so when when things happen in our community, he's just as sad as he sees me, <laughs> you know, and he checks on me and he, you know, sends encouraging quotes and all of that because he can understand what I'm going through. And so I do think that there are some who are just as impacted and who are just as concerned about our well-being. And honestly, I, you know, you guys started off this conversation with allies. I didn't hear the whole conversation, but we do have to remember we're not in this by ourselves. And that was evidenced by all of the protesting that was happening all over the world. Um, and still happening. I'm really surprised. Go ahead. Still happening. And not Portland just is by getting people, cracking. Not just by people of color. <laughs> Y'all heard me. Portland is getting so, cracking. <laughs> so I do. So I do think that, um, yes, there are people who are just as impacted as we are and they want us to experience justice. Right. But but when you're but to your point, I do think that if you're in the majority group and you are oppressing other groups, you may not you may be blinded. You, you may you may not have the sensitivity that it takes to recognize anything is going on. You potentially live in a world that you never see police violence and you never see these media images and you never get a video sent to you by a family member. And it's that it's that kind of that phrase that's been happening more recently. My Facebook feed is not your Facebook feed. Right. I can go through my Facebook feed of friends who are, you know, my other black friends and literally will be talking about the very same things. We're bothered by the same things. We'll be quoting the same things. And then I look at feed for white colleagues or other you know, white people who I come in contact with in other um, you know, situations. And their feed is very different. Right. They're posting their dogs and their kids and their popsicles and their boat rides. Right. So the reality is that, you know, you can they some groups can de- detach themselves from the the violence, the trauma that a group is experiencing. And it's no different. There are probably groups across the world, they're they're experiencing some kind of oppression and we may not even be aware of it because we're not tuned into it. And we're not watching the media images that are associated with that, right? So yes, there is a level of awareness. And I think that if you are African-American and if you're black across the world, that there is a sensitivity to things that are related to race. And there has to be for us to survive, right? So we are likely going to come across this in a way that other groups that are outside of our group will not. 
Okay, so with that, we had a writer, um, well, we had someone from our audience write in and they asked the question. So now that we're here, what does healing look like? Like, what can we do to positively affect our moods and the things that we have been seeing in order to kind of alleviate some of the trauma that we may have been experiencing looking at all of these things on various media outlets? Um, I think that's a great question. And I do think that I'm going to answer that on different levels. So if, if in fact you've been so significantly impacted where you've developed mental health, emotional symptoms that won't go away or behavioral issues or things that you're doing that's causing kind of a decline in your life, then I do think it's important for you to reach out for mental health support. And so um, there are some specific treatments that can be done. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so I do CBT and particularly for PTSD, there are evidence-based treatments like cognitive processing therapy or exposure, um, prolonged exposure therapy, even EMDR, which is not something that I um, am expert in, um, not something that I do, but there are therapists who are expert in it. And those are the treatments that are known to specifically target PTSD. And if you're not working with those specific about, you know, empirically validated treatments, there are things that you can do to include learning to manage your anxiety, learning to sort of retrain your thinking so that the images and the memories are reconstructed in a way that's more adaptive for you. And then it's also important to sort of counteract the avoidance and counteract the sort of behavioral disengagement. So I do think whether you're dealing with PTSD or whether you're dealing with grief or whether you're dealing with just mood changes, it's important to reach out for mental health support. The next level would be just reaching out for a support group in general. And I think that that can be done on a clinical level, but it also can be done on a general support level. In order to feel empowered, you often have to be surrounded by people of like minds, right? And so there are people who know that what you're going through, and there are people who are also coping actively and are coping well. You want to make sure that as many of those people are in your circle as possible. And if they're not there, you need to create that for yourself. So that's just on a general level what you can do if there are significant psychological or significant emotional effects that are lasting. Howard Stevenson, who he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and he does a lot of work in uh, like racial literacy for children and um, in general racial justice. Um, he's also the brother of Brian Stevenson, who's, you know, um, the Equal Justice Institute. So they're they're actually a dynamic duo. Oh, he, yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, he does a lot of work in this area. And I like to say this is kind of like the normal range, right? So what he says is, is that it's important in order to deal with ongoing racial trauma is that we process it. Because one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to distance ourselves and we avoid as opposed to leaning in. And we do that because we're often told that we're wrong. We're told that we're overreacting. We're told to get over it. And so I do think that there's a a fair amount of trauma that we just hold in our bodies Mm -hmm. and stress that we just hold in our bodies. So he says that it's really important that you calculate because there can be multiple instances that, that happen. Calculate how that particular incident impacts you. If it's significant, so you can even do a little rating scale, zero to 10, 10 being the worst. If it's significant, then you then want to move to locate where that is in your body. And he's just basically just sort of pointing to the idea of where is that stress living for you? And that's sort of mindful, if you think about it, that mindfulness movement where you start to pay attention to yourself and you pull in for that, you know, that self-care and self-reflection. And then the last thing he says is you communicate it. You talk about the feelings that you have and the safest environment you can do that the better. Some people don't have safe environments. So journaling can maybe be helpful, right? 
The next step is self-care, just taking care of yourselves, right? Just being kind to yourselves, being loving to yourself, being loving to the others around us, showing kind, careness, and compassion for other people, checking in with folks, making sure that if you're overwhelmed, that you manage that stress, that you pull back and do what you can to take care of yourself. Because then when racial trauma, when you're, when you are facing that, it makes a way, it's so much more difficult to then manage that if you're already working at a deficit, Right. And then things you can do to mitigate is what you expect is desensitization. But some people don't desensitize. Your, your, whatever it is about who you are, your temperament level, what you've been born into the world with, you may never be okay with watching violence, right? And so if that is the case, don't watch it. Mm-hmm. You got it. You got the point, yep. right? Don't yep. watch it. Tell people not to send it to you, right? If you are the type that can desensitize, you can you know sensitize yourself and you desensitize to it, then... It's okay then for you to do what you need to do. But then what I will say is you make sure that you prepare yourself for it and then you make sure you take care of yourself afterwards. Because what we know is that when you're faced with these images, media images, videos, these situations, and then you're also not adaptively coping, which means that you're coping in a way that that will cause poor health or will, for instance, if you don't go to work, that'll cause you to have a problem at work. If you're not adaptively coping, then it's it's going to cause a a more long-term effect. So it's important that you find adaptive ways to cope. So those are all of the ways I think, or not all of the ways or some of the ways that um, that we can sort of manage some of this and, and, and do what we can to take care of ourselves. But then the last part is making sure that we're reaching out because mental health is not just about us, what we do individually. It's about our way we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So Dr. C, one last question for you, since you talked a lot about self-care and things we can do mm-hmm. to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. Initially, we know, of course, mental health and seeking, you know, help from a therapist or a psychologist has been taboo in our community. Mm-hmm. Everything has started, you know, this year with the uptick of everything that's been going on. Has there, do you know if there's been an increase in the amount or the percentage of Black people that have sought therapy? So I can't tell you what the exact numbers are in the change. I can I can tell you anecdotally that I've seen an increasing um, what we call uptick of people, black people, African-Americans reaching out for therapy in my particular practice. And I also see it too at the VA. I think that there are probably a few things associated with that, including the fact that what we talked about earlier with the distrust, often um, black people and African-Americans have a difficult time feeling, or they actually have experienced situations that cause them to believe that the providers they see are not culturally competent or are not competent to care for them. And unfortunately, because there are so few African-Americans in the field, they are less likely to run into someone who they feel that they can relate to. And so I do think that being a Black psychologist does lend itself to people wanting to seek out treatment with me in particular, or when they are, they're aware of others around, they seek out care. So there has been an uptick. There's been particularly an uptick during this, you know, the last few months because of COVID and also because of all of the stress related to the protests and and the civil unrest associated with racial injustice. And so I do think that we are seeking out more care, but the reality is that there's still so many barriers. So whether it's that there really aren't really very many competent mental health people in the field and they're turning folks off, whether it's this historical distrust that contains to sort of, you know, cloud anyone's ability to, to, to move forward and seek help. 
What we know is that access to care is really limited. A lot of people may not have the necessary insurance or can, can't self-pay. And even when they have insurance and are able to seek out therapy, they're still underinsured in a way that they can't get the appropriate test or they are not able to seek out the amount of therapy that's needed. And so as a result, there's still a significant number of people who are just not seeking treatment, even though we know there is a mental, like significant or serious mental illness. And I think the numbers are as high as 60% for like young adults and for mid-age adults, it's like 50% and 90% of people older 12 who um, are like engaged in substance abuse because of their mental health concerns. So there's still significant disparities there, but it's, it, the gap is closing because like what you said, the stigma in general across America and across the world is the stigma is breaking down. And then the African-American community is breaking down there as well, just simply because some of our communities are starting to suggest and encourage people to seek out you know, professional help, whether it's our churches, you know, whether it's our elders, they're, they're starting to endorse this idea that, um, that it's okay. Yeah. And I think that's an, that's a great way to close this out. That's encouraging, right? Like we still have a long ways to go with Mm -hmm. every front from civil justice to, you know, us being able to seek that help and get the help that we need. And I'm so glad you even mentioned that COVID-19, that that's brought on some increase in, you know, what you're seeing in your own practice, because we have even heard of some stars who have actually killed themselves during this time. So we know that a lot, these people are being affected in some way. So I just want to thank you, Dr. C. I mean, listen, this was a wealth of information and knowledge that was just so lit. So thank you so much because (laughs) this is going to help so many people. And I'm just so glad we can have that conversation with a specialist in this area, in this field. So thank you so much for joining us. I don't want this to be the last time you're on here talking about things such as this because our people need to hear it. And that's what we're here for. We are here for our people. So thank you again, Dr. C, for your time. My absolute pleasure. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> thank you, Dr. C. Thank you for inviting me. It's so good to meet you all. This you too. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. So for our Joke Gift in the Black segment, we all know that election 2020 is probably the most important election so far in our lifetime. So a number of Black athletes and celebrities have banded together to donate $100,000 to help pay the debts of the former felons in Florida so that they can vote in November. More Than a Vote, which was a group founded by LeBron James and others in June of 2020 to fight against voter suppression, says that it will donate $100,000 to help pay the outstanding debts of people who have already served time for their felony convictions, but are still unable to vote in Florida. The money will go to the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, reports Politico. The organization helped secure the passage of an amendment in 2018, which restored voting rights to 1.4 million former felons in Florida, wow, imagine saying that fast, um, who had been previously banned from from voting for life under the state's constitution. So we all went to school in Florida. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that even if you served out your time for a felony, you still are not able to vote after serving your time. So kudos to these celebrities to making sure that these people who have served their time and paid their debts to society are still able to practice their constitutional right and submit their vote in November. Yeah. And we need to get the word out so they know that they can do it because a lot of people still don't know that they have the ability. So I know a lot of efforts have been going into that. So that's what's up. Yes. I'm sorry. Before we close out, one thing I want to say about voting, because y'all know this is probably 
one of my passions. Start researching now how you can submit a mail-in ballot in your state or because I'm just thinking we're still going to be dealing with this COVID-19 in November. Like it's not going away anytime soon. So I really think it would benefit all of us to figure out alternative ways to vote in person come November. So start looking that up now. And ladies, if you all don't have any objections, I think that we should start looking these up for our listeners and even sharing this information on our social media pages. You know, I'm down. I'm we, gotta, we, gotta, we got to get this man up out of here. Let's go. No, I'm, and I'm voting in person. I don't even want to take that chance. I'll, I'm not gonna, I understand. I, I thought about it myself. I'm like, man, do I need to just suck this Mm-mm. up and figure this out? No. And that's, that's because... That's because Baltimore's our past previous elections, that mail-in foolishness was a cluster. So I'm, I don't want to take any chances. I don't care. I will stand there in my full outbreak gear to make sure that I vote. With a full costume. With a full suit on. <laughs> yes. Thanks. So here's my fear. and we Because I know in D.C. we had this issue during the primaries. Not all of our precincts were open. Yeah. Like I can walk to my voting precinct from my house, but my precinct was not open in June. So, I mean, thankfully, I'd already requested a mail-in ballot. So that's my only hesitation. And maybe the general election will be different. But no, I it's think, not. Oh, well, see? They're going to still be closed. Now, mine was open. That's, you know, down the street from my house. I can walk to it. But I don't know what that's going to look like in November. Right. It may be less. I don't think it's going to be more. Y'all got to understand this man know he's finna get up out of here. So he's finna try to pull everything that he can. Well, he he has been. So there's been more precincts that have been closed down. Like, um, I'm trying to remember who was the young lady that got killed in um, Kentucky? Was it Breonna Breonna Taylor? Breonna Taylor. Yeah. So after she got killed, they shut down a lot of the precincts in the area where she lived because they knew that people were probably going to come out in droves. So just but you know you also be aware. But you know that's also contributing because a lot of these poll places they have retired people that are staffing them. So mm-hmm. that's why because they don't have the people to staff them too. Right, exactly. So what they're doing now, and I don't know if you guys saw this, but they're starting to do some advertisements to teenagers to train them because they're at you know a lesser risk of dying. Not to say that they can't die, and I want us to be clear on that. Like that don't mean go and have parties and do stupid stuff. That part the risk is a little bit lower, but of course we know that they go back home and they're around elderly. So that still is a risk, but what they are doing is trying to, you know, appeal to younger people to work the polls because the elderly are afraid to go in there because they are at high risk. So I think, you know, if we can get that, that will help us. And maybe you'll see more polling places open back up. But like you said, we got to have a plan B and figure this out. Whether it be dressing full hazmat suits or ensure that your mail-in uh, situation in your city and in your state is um, up to par. Right. Just like we stood in line for Obama in 2008 and 2012, we need to be prepared to stand in line in 2020. That's true. That's true. That's all I'm going to say. So again, thank you all for joining us. And we want to thank Dr. C for being our special guest. Make sure that you tune in in two weeks because we have another hot episode coming up. 
Don't forget to listen, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Listen to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. Connect with us on social media at Fem Noir Files on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Fem Noir Files. Bye!